0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.
1: From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Doug Collum
0: and Irene Yen. Welcome to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. We broadcast live from the campus of Wharton, San Francisco on the Embarcadero in downtown San Francisco right next door to Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Irina Yen, along with my co-host, Doug Colum, adjunct professor of management here at Wharton, and Doug teaches a class on venture capital and startups. I am the director of entrepreneurship for the Wharton, San Francisco campus. Coming up on today's show, we'll speak with Chris Wake, the head of business operations for Spire, a satellite-powered data company. Chris will talk about how Spire went from a Kickstarter poster child to a multinational organization with offices in San Francisco, Singapore, and Glasgow in under three years. And later on, we will be talking with Lee Spire, the founding principal of the Class 5 Group, a leading IPO advisory company.
1: Great. And I'd like to add my welcome to Bay Area Ventures as well for those people who are dialing in for the first time. Our program is about the world of entrepreneurship and startups and venture capital here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, our show broadcasts live every Monday at 4 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time. Uh, that's 7 p.m. Eastern Time, and it reairs again throughout the week for people who are not able to dial in. And then each week, we are um, joined by entrepreneurs and investors and thought leaders from the Bay Area business community, who share with us their insights and opinions on a wide range of issues, trends, and developments going on in the Bay Area tech community. And we've got two great guests today. We're looking forward to talking with Chris. And also, Lee Speyer will be talking about um, IPOs and bubbles and um, unicorns. And this is really one of the first times in our program that we will have a guest who will be speaking to late-stage companies, traditionally Right. Uh, Irina, we've had people on who are focused on very early stage. Right, just and, starting out. Growing, yeah. yeah. And Chris is in that mode very much. So
0: Excited to hear about it. It's a really interesting story. Um, if you're an entrepreneur who's act- actively engaged in running a startup business or if you've been thinking about striking out on your own, uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at, at com and uh, this is a talk show, so if you have a question for our guests coming up, you can reach us at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Uh, each week, Doug and I switch off hosting Bay Area Ventures with our other co-host, Donald Landworth. So be sure to check out our website, too, at businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu for our full schedule. So as Doug mentioned, we're joined now by our first guest, Chris Wake. Chris is the head of business operations for SPIRE, the satellite-powered data company Chris joined Spire in early 2013 uh, and has worked on many areas of its development from initial customer identification to expansion abroad. we mentioned earlier that Spire, in a short amount of time already, has a presence not only in San Francisco but also Singapore and Glasgow. And prior to joining Spire, uh, Chris also spent time in venture capital and as an advisor to many early stage companies looking to scale their company. Chris, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: So you have a very interesting journey from the world of venture investing, advising early stage companies um, who are interested in scaling to now an operating role uh, at Spire. Um, Could you talk a little bit about your background and your journey that that brought you here <laughs> to Spire,
2: uh sure it's a bit of a long and odd one i suppose so i uh, uh going back to undergraduate there was a professor of mine who had kind of words of wisdom that he gave to me uh, and initially told me to go into sales because going into sales was kind of the first place where you'd get your feet wet and you would actually get uh, close customer contact and that would be an inroads to everything that you'd want to do going forward if you ever wanted to be the CEO of a company or if you wanted to get into startups you wanted to know sales and you wanted to know the customer uh, so I kind of went through that route and did uh, sales for a little bit got into more kind of marketing and sales strategy uh, that turned into a strategy role at Coopers, mm-hmm. large multinational company I uh, got to really understand kind of how a big company and organization like that moves and how they evolve and change over time mm-hmm. uh, and then leverage that into uh, going actually back to school uh, where I got my MBA uh, at Oxford, uh, got in- introduced, I suppose, to Silicon Valley and everything that it has to offer uniquely through Oxford, which has a strange and amazing connection with the Valley uh, and came out here. Uh, started a couple of companies of my own. Learned so, so when did ton. you move
1: out to the Bay Area?
2: Uh, so I've been out here for about uh, coming up on six years now. So far, uh, so good. So far, so good. Yeah. Uh, you gotta love the weather. Yeah. I was coming from Chicago, yeah. where it's you know gorgeous in the summers, horrible in the winters. And then in Oxford, right? And then at Oxford, it's, right? and and then in a Oxford bit rainy. Sometimes. Yeah, here something about waking up in January and it's seventy three and sunny <laughs> just is amazing. Still blows my mind. Uh, but everything out here has been great. Had the opportunity to do a lot of unique and interesting things. So not only working on some of my own projects, but also helping to advise and work with some others who had. You know, unique ideas of their own that they wanted to take forward. So
1: so a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs or early stage employees with companies talk about the role of serendipity in their career choices. How did you end <laughs> up with Spire? Talk about
2: serendipity. Uh, so I cold emailed uh, the CEO and founder, Peter, actually via Angelist. Uh, so I reached out to him and you know told him how I thought what he was doing looked fascinating.
1: And for people um, that don't know what AngelList is.
2: Uh, so AngelList is a, a great resource out there, angel.co, for uh, connecting startups to venture investors uh, and also connecting startups with potential employees or people who want to work in startups. So if you want to know about a startup and you want to know about startups in your town, definitely check out AngelList.
1: I mean, oh. I have to say that's pretty unusual. I was I was this. Just say, it uh, is definitely yeah. <laughs>
2: unusual. I, I have yet to really hear others with that same kind of story. I mean, I think
1: as you tell your story, I think for people who are listening in, um, it's, it's pretty amazing how you cold called your way into a wonderful job in a wonderful company like Spire. <laughs> so anyway, let the story begin. So, <laughs> so tell, us to, tell us about Spire.
2: Sure. Uh, so Spire... Um, is a satellite-powered data company. Uh, what that means is that in practice, we build and deploy small shoebox-sized satellites. Uh, I have a habit of using my hand, so I'm showing off what a shoebox size looks like <laughs> right now. Right. Uh, but small shoebox-sized satellites that we deploy to low-Earth orbit, uh, and we deploy them in mass. Uh, the idea being that we focus on signal intelligence.
1: Like, dozen, I'm trying to get a sense for it, like Dozens of satellites or scores or hundreds? So,
2: uh, Initially, we'll have uh, 20 satellites in orbit by just around the first of next year, Mm -hmm. uh, growing to somewhere north of 100. Uh, So the idea is actually that we're kind of uh, deploying these all around kind of different orbits around Earth so that we're able to capture all points on Earth all the time. Uh, So initially with 20 satellites, we'll be able to give you updates from virtually any place on Earth every 20 minutes. And with 100 satellites, you start to get down to single-digit minutes, and you also start to get into you know, many terabytes of data a day that you're actually pulling down. And the unique thing for us is that uh, where most satellite companies that you hear about are looking, like, so they're visual, they're taking photos, they're imaging, we listen. So for us, the big focus is on signal intelligence. Uh, the two pieces of signal intelligence that we provide with our satellites, one is maritime, and the other is weather. Uh, So what we found is that with this form factor satellite, very small, you're able to cover more of the Earth more frequently. And when we started to think about where that actually has the most value, it's around those truly global systems that exist. Mm -hmm. And today, two truly global systems that are of utmost importance. One is maritime. When you start to think about 90 plus percent of global trade that transits via ocean going cargo vessel. Not many people know that or think about that on a day-to-day basis. But if you look around any room that you're in right now, 90% of the goods in that room in some way, shape, or form came over on a boat at some point mm-hmm. or another. Right. Uh, so maritime is a big one. And if we can provide intelligence over maritime, there's a lot of value to be had there. Uh, and then similarly on the weather side, weather impacts literally everything from what it is I chose to wear this morning to why you have consumer packaged goods companies that will ship more product to one city versus another in any given week. So it's massive impact.
1: So so just before we jump into the commercial applications, just just round out on the technology side. You're you're going from 20 of these shoebox-sized satellites to 100 by the beginning of 2017?
2: Yes, correct, by 2017. So
1: that's a massive expansion of your satellite network. Do you have massive computing power available to basically process the data that the satellites are collecting?
2: We do. So the the compute power is an interesting one because we're able to take advantage on our satellites of Moore's law and everything that's happening here on Earth. So in the same way that you're upgrading your cell phone every two years, we want to upgrade our satellites every two years. We will actually physically replace our satellites on a rolling cycle. The idea being that we want to take advantage of newer, better technology as it happens. Mm-hmm. So we're consistently upgrading and iterating on the actual technology platform that we're using so that we can get better and better data out of it. And you look at then the compute power that you're getting out of the actual chips and the, the computers that you're putting on board. Uh, it's on an exponential curve. You look at similarly power and some of the other pieces, and you can actually see that the capabilities are expanding at a, an ever-increasing rate So when we look at the compute power of our satellites uh, versus even something like the Mars rover, you have thousands upon thousands of, (laughs) it's more like a thousand X or many thousand X uh, kind of jump in terms of the compute power that you really? get out of one of our satellites versus something like the Mars rover mm-hmm. that costs more than $2 billion to so put So
1: actually the compute power resides on the satellite itself and not it's not ground-based? So there's both,
2: mm-hmm. actually. So there's compute power on board, but then there's also a lot of processing that you're able to do here on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, so utilizing advancements in cloud technology, we're able to get data back very quickly and do a lot of that compute that formerly you'd have to kind of wait days, weeks, months to actually get into a central repository mm-hmm. or location mm-hmm. where you could do anything with it.
0: Gives a different perspective on the notion of cloud computing, right? <laughs> <mean> orbit? Space, <laughs> to <laughs> cloud no, space to yeah. cloud. Can you give us, Chris, an idea of like um, kind of context and relativity? You'd mentioned like 20 shoebox-sized satellites up to, say, 100. Like today, like what's in orbit? So for folks again, get an idea of the scale of this.
2: Sure. Uh, so today there are only a few thousand satellites in orbit. Uh, and if you were to take our satellites, for instance, and you model out one orbit or one circle around the Earth, you could fit 30,000 of our satellites are in that one circle around the Earth. And each one would still be a mile away from each other individual one. Mm. So you still have a lot of space up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you go out you know, another set of, say, 10, 20, 100 kilometers, uh, and you could do another 30,000 and another and another. So when we you know go back to kind of one of the famous saying, there's a lot of room at the bottom, well, there's actually much more room up top or specifically in space. Mm-hmm. Uh, so being able to provide kind of uh, resources in low Earth orbit is kind of um, the opportunity is there. And the unique element that you have as well in kind of low Earth orbit that you don't have necessarily in kind of some of the higher orbits is that LEO and LEO, low Earth orbit, uh, <laughs> is kind of like the drain in your sink. Uh, So when you think about how water revolves around the drain in your sink, it eventually goes down. Well, in low-Earth orbit, you are always falling closer and closer to Earth, and eventually you will reenter and burn up on reentry.
1: And it's complete. Disintegration. So our
2: satellites disintegrate on reentry into Earth's atmosphere. So
1: let's, let's shift to the commercial application. So you've got maritime on one side and weather on the other. Maybe you can talk about, pick one and let's... Let's break it down. So
2: maritime uh, is an interesting one because there are some scary things here that not everybody kind of realizes. And then there are some other kind of opportunities. Uh, So for starters, I guess, uh, when you go 50 miles off of any coastline, you are essentially disconnected from the modern world. So whether you're in a plane, whether you're in a boat, whether you're swimming the English Channel, you are no longer connected to the modern world
0: even though uh, for the boats have this black box or they have transmitters or planes do too yep. so they have transmitters
2: still... uh the issue actually becomes a curvature of the earth so the signals are able to go out horizontally and go out vertically and on the horizontal you get to a point where the curvature of the earth is such that they're not reaching the next kind of signal location antenna. or the next antenna mm-hmm. uh, so part of the problem there is that they're sending out a vertical signal and today there's no one really listening with consistency for those signals. So ships are required by international maritime law to have this kind of black box or what they call AIS, which Mm -hmm. is Automatic Identification System, and they send out a signal that gives you details on its origin, its destination, its heading, its speed, and a couple other odds and ends. Uh, And effectively, they're sending the signal out in a very frequent fashion But there, again, aren't a lot of satellites out there actually listening to pick up that signal and to do anything relevant with it. So part of our focus is on getting to a consistency where if you see a specific trajectory of a ship and you see dots from that specific ship on a very consistent basis every 15 minutes, every 10 minutes, what have you, uh, you can actually then pick out anomalies very distinctly and very clearly.
1: Anomalies being like a sudden turn?
2: A sudden turn. If a ship disappears... So for those out there that have seen Captain Phillips, uh, literally the first thing a modern day pirate will do is they'll turn off that beacon, they'll turn off that signal. Uh, And so part of the the issue today is that they turn off that signal and if you don't have consistent readings on a ship, no one's looking for it. No one's even looking for any sort of anomaly or any Uh occurrence like that. So having very consistent beacons, you're able to pick out anomalies very quickly and to notify the appropriate authorities or to notify, in this case, a a partner organization or someone else who could take a high-resolution image, perhaps, to validate or invalidate what's going on. Uh, so or it's setting a of pattern
0: of, of signals like that sort of thing pa- establishing a pattern so you can identify when there is an anomaly in that pattern exactly and so today what do they do they have is like pattern it's just like so sporadic that you're not even sure what the picture really it's like
1: is a
2: snapshot in time got it kind of what you have today Got
1: it so who is consu- consuming the service that you, that's enabled through spire in this maritime data tracking capability?
2: So it varies. Uh, it's, it's honestly all the way from governments to large multinational companies. Uh, so when you think about uh, individual government entities, they want to know who's coming in and out of their port facility at all points in time, uh, or in and out of their terrestrial waters. They want to know for security reasons. they want to know for search and rescue. they want to know for insurance, they want to know for trade monitoring, you name it. So the list kind of goes on. So,
1: so, so let me flip the question in a different way. So you've got 20 satellites up circling the globe. And you don't need to be the owner of a ship to to request having your ship tracked. In effect, if you're a government, you want to maintain tabs on all shipping, regardless of country of origin or regardless of purpose and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, is it the goal of Spire to track all maritime traffic just automatically if ship leaves port and automatically gets picked up by a satellite?
2: Yes. So the goal is to provide the single greatest understanding of global trade that has ever existed. So when you start to consider the number of ships that are going across the oceans at any given point in time and the number of goods that are out there that we're utilizing on a day-to-day basis that Mm -hmm. are moving via ships, uh, the notion that we do not have the connectivity uh, or the understanding of kind of where those things are is a problem. Uh, so, again, kind of on the localized or geofence side, governments have an issue where they need to know who's coming in and out of their terrestrial waters. Right. Shipping companies need to know where are my assets at all points in time. And then down the chain, you have folks like insurance companies who are relying upon uh, kind of just word of mouth stories kind of coming in to basically pay out claims that can number in the tens of millions of dollars Yes. anytime there's a claim. Uh, to financial markets where you're relying upon commodities and goods that are transiting over oceans and can have a vast impact on the overall financial markets. Or you're also talking about supply chain. So at the end of the day, I have more knowledge of a $2 package that I'm getting from Amazon that is transiting via San Francisco from their (laughs) warehouse to my doorstep than someone who's transiting a few billion dollars worth of goods over an ocean. They get a window of 7 to 14 days. And they need to work within that. And that just seems absolutely crazy in this day and age that you don't have a greater understanding.
0: That's amazing. So what's the understanding now? Like, So you mentioned Aspire listens to signals versus um, visual data. So listening to pings, I guess, and creating a pattern for that. And then is there a way to validate what you're hearing with visual data? Or do the patterns that the... Pings or the signals that you're listening to create a picture for you.
2: So the pings are part of the picture, uh, and part of kind of the focus for Spire is actually on this notion of sensor fusion. So any individual sensor, uh, specifically, you can think of ship tracking as a sensor. You can think of our weather product as a sensor. You can think of imaging as a sensor. Mm-hmm. Any individual sensor can give you a data point. But a data point gets far more valuable and interesting when you're able to cross-reference it with other data points. You get additional context around just what it is you're seeing and just why certain elements in this network are operating the way that they are. Uh, so, for instance, as we think about kind of the, the value behind uh, weather and maritime, there's a unique kind of value and understanding that comes from being able to meld those two things together so that suddenly if you're in the middle of the North Pacific – you have a greater understanding of the weather patterns that are evolving around you and can take proactive course corrections in order to get to port either faster or slower or around the storm or what have you. So you start to think about things like, um, for instance, uh, Long Beach and the Port of L.A. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, Long Beach looks a little bit like the 405 all the time, so there's always (laughs) congestion Uh, And with greater understanding of where ships are at all points in time and how they're reacting to the weather patterns around them, Long Beach could actually start to proactively say to ship's captains in the middle of the Pacific, hey, slow down, Uh, we don't have space for you, or hey, speed up, and if you can get here in two days as opposed to three days, perhaps we'll have a spot and we'll be able to get you in sooner rather than later.
1: So if you are just now joining us, we are speaking with Chris Wake, who is the Vice President of Business Operations with Spire a company that collects uh, data from a network of satellites around the globe with applications in both the maritime and the weather arenas. So I'm, I'm intrigued because you've got a network here. I assume that most shipping of any import carries a transponder or a beacon and is constantly sending out signals. So, And you should... Chris, you should just be frank. If you can't respond to these things because it's, it, it relates to sensitive information. But that would mean that in its ultimate configuration, Spire has the ability to track all maritime traffic wherever it's located on the globe.
2: So yes and no. Uh, so there are two, two types of signals that are being sent out. Uh, One is required by international maritime law. So commercial vessels over a certain size are required by international maritime law to actually have this transponder that they're sending out a signal. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. any kind of commercial trade vessel or anything kind of transiting uh, international cargo overseas has this type of signal. The other is uh, tied to a less regulated kind of industry. So specifically, you can think about pleasure crafts uh, have a certain type of signal that they can you know add to their boat to send out
1: but do they i mean if you if you have a a 50 foot yacht and you're out inconsistent yeah so to be honest some some don't yeah so
2: that one you could you go to dick's sporting goods and you could pick it up if you wanted to (laughs) add it onto your boat it's really more for peace of mind so if you want the safety of having the signal that can be tracked by the coast guard in case of inclement weather i highly recommend you do that
1: on the other hand but it's not required. But on the other hand if you're if you're smuggling contraband from across borders and you choose to turn off your your beacons and run silent, that's not something that you would be able that spire would be able to pick up either from an audio standpoint or from a visual standpoint. Is that right? I mean the question I'm getting to is can you I mean it, this has lots of military and security and legal compliance potential and I'm mm-hmm. trying to it sounds like most of the stuff that Spire is getting into is very straightforward, very uh, necessary commercial and civilian applications, but it has a huge range of potential.
2: Certainly, certainly, um, which is again part of kind of why we wanted to focus on this because of the fact that it has massive potential, and it it's astounding that it doesn't yet exist.
1: Agree. Right. Yeah, I, I I get that for sure.
0: So, what's the best? What what does it look like today? Like the best case of tracking maritime trade, for example, that use case. What does the best case look like? It sounds like the best case Spire is more a uh, better. Uh, better data with greater frequency, so the meaningful the information that it provides is meaningful. The frequency of that data is meaningful so today, what does that look like if i 'm a global shipping company, <laughs> what do I see or not
2: uh, so if you 're a shipping company ostensibly you 're in contact with your ships all the time, uh, so you have the i guess flexibility to manually pinpoint where they are. Mm. Uh, the unique thing gets when you get beyond the shipping company, you start to think about the people who rely upon the shipping company. And in that case, you could be a fortune 10, fortune 20 company, and you're still going to get the same story, seven to 14 days as the window that you're given for your goods that are coming overseas. Uh, so the reality is that there's a manual process that exists for the shipping companies and some do better than others uh, for tracking their assets uh, but for everyone else who relies upon that same information, seven to fourteen days.
1: Wow, so again, I want to focus on maritime we're coming up on a break here in three or four minutes, but um, so you've got maritime focused and it has lots of obvious logistical and um, other commercial benefits for those people that could use the application. So do you have companies calling in customers? calling in over the transom and saying god we just heard about spire and, the, and its capabilities and you know how do we sign up we want that data
2: we we do um so <laughs> probably not the greatest public example but i like to think of it as a, a hot nightclub uh so we're <laughs> at a stage right now where we we have a little great velvet nightclub rope. <laughs> with a velvet rope and we're kind of a uh, taking numbers at the door
1: do you screen customers we do i yeah. mean screen them in terms of what the purpose of the why they want the data and capability i don't know what the there's criteria. Fit, yeah. Right.
2: yeah there's certainly a fit yeah uh, for the customers that we're looking at I, I mean at the end of the day there's a, a certain value that we can bring uh, for us it's in uh, high temporal resolution so that frequency of data that you can get and then the access to fresh data and there's a certain type of customer that really relies upon high temporal resolution and very ready access to fresh data on a consistent in, basis.
1: What kind of customer is that? Is that like insurance companies? Are they Insurance
2: companies, sure. Uh, you think about anyone, again, on the supply chain or logistics side, anyone in financial services. Uh, it, it is shipping companies. It is governments. I mean, it's, it's a number of different folks out there. I think word it's it's is hard to out. kind of distinguish one or two. Yeah, and, but is
1: word getting out? I mean, putting aside the marketing effort from <laughs> from Spira, but is word getting out? That's hey, there's a there's a new player in town, and you've, word, you've got yeah. to see this to believe it.
2: Word is certainly getting out. Yeah, that's it's, it's been an interesting one. As as soon as you have satellites kind of going up, people hear. Uh, so we are, you know, in some respects, we're the first to market, certainly on the weather side, on the maritime side. We're offering something different and unique. Uh, I think that there's value in kind of what exists today and what you can get from the market, but there's added value in adding this temporal resolution and the high access time.
0: Got it. If you're just joining us, I'm Irene again with Doug Colum, and our guest this hour is the head of business operations for Spire, Chris Wake. Stay with us as we continue our conversation. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Bay Area Ventures on SiriusXM's business radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Irina Yen, along with Doug Collum, and our guest this hour is Chris Wake, the head of business operations for Spire, a private company that specializes in data gathered from a network of, of small satellites or nanosatellites. And when we left off, we were talking about um, the maritime application of Spire's technology, or Spire Sense, the name of that product. Um, Spire also has a product, Spire Stratus, with, which has weather implications. Um, so I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that, Chris. I mean, it's really interesting to talk about the impact of Spire's technology um, the data, the anal- analytics, and the implications for the maritime industry. Um, but what about the weather? I mean, there's a, we hear about the weather a lot. So is the data we're getting not complete or not enough? How is Spire's technology, like, one louder, if you will?
2: Sure. Uh, so weather is an interesting topic simply because it's the universal topic of conversation. I think that every one of us, when we speak to any relative in any other location, weather is one of the immediate things that comes <laughs> right. up.
1: Your health and the weather. Your health and the (laughs) weather, exactly. Uh,
2: So the unique situation that we're in today is that we have uh, compute power that is getting ever better over time. It is on that exponential growth curve. Thank you, Mr. Moore and Moore's Law. Uh, And you have a lot of weather prediction models that continue to get better over time. So we're getting better and better in utilizing the compute power that we have here on the ground. Uh, but. When you actually look at where raw weather data, so the raw inputs uh, and where those come from, you see a precipitous decline over time. Uh, So we're in a situation where we have a Ferrari in the garage, and we're trying to drip feed that Ferrari with unleaded gasoline and expecting it to operate at peak performance. That's a great analogy. Right, so the data
0: sources are all that... um, that the, the poor gasoline, if you will. Exactly. That, so it, it's, but all of these models, the European model, the Canadian model, the U.S. model, tracking weather, takes all of the data from the same source, the primary
2: source? So most of the data that we rely upon today for all those models actually comes from satellites. Mm-hmm. So the, the raw horsepower that you're getting is coming from satellites. Uh, so it, the kind of situation that we're in is that many of those satellites are either coming up on end of life or have already surpassed it and are still kind of hoppling along uh, with some question of where they go from here Uh, so part of the value that we want to bring is we want to bring a higher consistency uh, to the amount of raw data that we're able to get Uh, so the core technology that we use is something called gps radio occultation Uh, it's kind of a technology that's been around for a number of years uh, initially brought together by nasa uh, and now deployed in a way that with our constellation you can start to get higher fidelity data readings on a very consistent basis uh, to the tune of with the 20 satellites that we'll have up into the first part of next year it'll be 10x the amount of raw weather data that we have available today
1: Wow! so just to come back on this um and i don't know if this is um relevant or not i heard somewhere that um the ability of the u.s forecasting system is is way behind the European forecasting system, just as a function of compute power and, and capability. So is this so is what Spire is doing relevant to that discussion? Maybe not, because Spire is a private company and basically you're you're packaging data and making it available to customers on a commercial basis. But will will the capability that Spire achieves going forward enhance? The forecasting ability of the U.S. Weather Service, for example?
2: So it could techni- it, it could actually enhance any model that you put it into. So if you have more raw inputs, uh, then you have um, more data to work with. And effectively, you're pulling out uh, smaller margins of error on the forecast that you're actually getting out of the system that you're using. Uh, so we can't speak specifically to kind of the forecast model itself mm-hmm. uh, because we really sit at the raw data input I side see, of things. right. Uh, so we could feed in raw data to the U.S. system or the European system or the Canadian system or the Australian system or what have you uh, and provide them with the raw inputs. Uh, the value then could actually be in allowing uh, some of those existing networks and kind of systems uh, to then focus on additive elements. So with us, we can't provide a very – a holistic view of the weather per se we provide kind of the raw inputs so it's your I get it. uh, right. temperature pressure and uh, precipitation
1: and of course the of us the and of course the the us weather forecasting service can avail itself of that data for the right price
2: well we are a commercial company, so of course. Yeah. <laughs>
0: well, that's interesting. It's, it goes back to the data and the, the um, frequency, frequency of the data, the quality of the data coming from the, those three different, like temperature and the other two inputs. Yep. But if you will, like if you have more points of data, the picture gets to be a little sharper about what you're looking at, kind of Correct. like there are a million points that create a circle, but if you only have a handful, it might look like a triangle or square, that sort of so, thing. So, a
2: perfect example is actually thinking of uh, Joaquin uh that was off of the east coast Mm -hmm. uh so storm off of the east coast and uh the kind of notion around that is that you had a lot of predictions around how joaquin was going to move was it going to hit the east coast was it going to hit the bahamas was it going to hit south where was it going to hit uh the issue there is that there wasn't enough raw data feeding into those models to make an accurate prediction so you had predictions that had it going all over the place uh, and essentially what they did is they sent up a few small planes to start taking readings around the storm and use that as a way to feed more input into their system to then get a better forecast on where the storm was actually going to hit. The problem with that, though, is that it is one of those notions where you're getting a very limited data set and you're not taking everything into account. So for those familiar with the butterfly butterfly effect, the idea that if a butterfly flaps its wings in Singapore, you see rain in New York weather is a truly global system and everything that happens around the globe impacts everything else in some way, shape or form. So without a truly global understanding of what the weather is and how it's evolving, you're going to be off in terms of where you predict something will will hit or not hit. Uh, so the idea behind Spire and its, its network is to provide more raw data and a truly global picture so that you can feed that into a system and have it better understanding of precisely how things evolve together as opposed to in a small pocket. And this is another case where I throw out kind of a yeah. layman's example of if I'm taking the temperature at one corner of a room, uh, I can get a fairly accurate reading of the temperature in the room, but I'm not going to understand the entire room. If at the opposite corner, someone has a window open to a breezy cold night, Right, you're getting something that is going to be impacted anytime there's a gust coming through the window. And the same as with global weather patterns. So anytime something changes or shifts, you're going to see impact.
1: So as, so as the volume of, of this data stream increases as you launch more and more satellites into the sky, give us some examples of how this data could be used in the commercial environment. Ooh, uh,
2: where do I start? Uh, so if you start to think about... Uh, well, at the level of, that you and I think about it, you know, what we choose to wear every morning. Uh, so you could think about opening up an application on your phone and having an accurate prediction that not only gives you the next six hours, but actually gives you the next 24 hours, the next 36 hours, the next 96 hours. You start to see less variability in the forecasting that we see so every day. Everyday hey, it's the it's basic nice to know if it's going to be raining or sunny nice to today. Know. Yeah. But then it's also going to impact everything like buying decisions as well. So as you start to look at large consumer goods companies or uh, even the likes of somebody like a Google, imagine how search is shifted every time that there's a rainstorm in San Francisco that's unexpected or every time there's a heat wave coming through Chicago or a cold spell going through Boston or what have you. Uh, So you can see kind of impact on the supply and demand side for large companies that want to focus on, okay, where do I ship products? Uh, No affiliation here, but I I love to use as an example of uh, Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola delivers happiness and they focus on kind of opening (laughs) happiness. Right. Uh, Well, that actually means that any given week, they like to deliver more Coca-Cola to a sunny city than a cloudy city. Because anytime it's sunny outside, people want a refreshing beverage to go to and pop open. They drink more Coke. Yeah. Mm. So if you think about that, Coke would love to understand better data on where the weather is going to be impacted and how weather will evolve over time. So suddenly your demand side shifts in effect for that. Or if you start to think about commodities uh, on the uh, supply side, your commodities will shift based upon how weather will impact. Kind of the supply.
1: In in respect of Spire's strategic plans looking down a more distant road, I mean, does this data portend better or more accurate long range weather forecasting?
2: With more data, you can provide more long range forecasting with a higher degree of accuracy.
1: People talk about El Nino, for example, and its impact worldwide, and particularly here in California, uh, which is uh, in drought, in a drought, is that is that something that's in the discussion with uh, spire capability? Um. Not not El Nino per se, but the ability. It's really almost like replacing the Farmer's Almanac, where you can right. look out over not just 24 hours or 96 hours, but rather you can look out three months, right, or maybe six months, or maybe a year.
0: Like with all this data, is there a pattern recognition well, with just, greater data?
1: Just wondering what the potential of this data stream could be
2: i don't think we yet know uh so the value in the raw data that we can provide we can provide 10x email of raw data that's currently available with 20 satellites going towards 100x with the full constellation when we have that up uh, so the value of that i think is is almost impossible to figure today mm-hmm. in the sense that we you and I uh, talk about the weather all the time, but no one really does anything to to change it or to better understand it on a you know individual level. And I think with more data uh, fed in consistently to some of the systems that we have, the potential is is massive. So it could be that instead of opening up your phone and seeing a seven day forecast, I think we chose seven days because of you know someone held up a thumb and decided yep. we'll do seven days yeah <laughs> uh, in reality, we, why couldn't it be thirty days out? Why couldn't it be sixty days out? If you feed in more data and you have uh, powerful systems that can take in that data and analyze it and understand it in a much more granular fashion, you know, the sky's the limit. Right. Although in our case, you know, we're we're past the sky and in orbit, so
0: we've passed the sky. Is that does Spire offer? So is, so if I'm a potential customer, is what is what Spire offers the raw the data the raw data or data and analytics
2: so we are a raw data source mm-hmm. uh, so we provide the data to uh, customers that can take and pull out of that data what is of most interest to them
0: mm-hmm. and so for the satellite network it um, we were talking about how by 20 early 2017 spiral have 100 plus nano satellites in orbit what's the implications on the ground stations you have to have ground stations to receive the signals and building that out as well what does that look like and in- where do, those, where do those live all around the earth? Yep.
2: You know? So uh, the value that you can get from data from space is only as valuable as how quickly you can get it down, mm-hmm. uh, at least in our mindset. So again, going back to this access uh, notion and that our customers value having fresh data. So fresh data comes from having uh, antennas or ground stations uh, deployed all around the world to talk to our satellites on a near-continuous basis. Wow. Uh, so we went about the process of rolling out kind of our, our own network at the same point that we were rolling out the satellites themselves, understanding that there is that value between the connectivity of the two.
1: Mm-hmm. Be- before we shift into um, a topic I definitely want to get into, which is the this, this, this story behind Spire, <laughs> uh, for those people who are just now dialing in, I'm Doug Colum. I'm here with my co-host, Irina Yen, and we're talking with Chris Wake, who is the vice president of business operations with Spire, a San Francisco-based uh, early-stage company that gathers data from a satellite from a network of satellites and using it in applications relevant to weather and to maritime traffic, it's an interesting story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Chris, let's shift gears all together and talk about we're getting get get beyond now your your cold call from AngelList <laughs> into. Uh, into Spire. But you were, you, were one, you were the first non-founding employee of the company?
2: I was, an early, I was an early one. I was one of the first crazy people. And to jump what, on board. what
1: year was that? That was in <laughs> 2012?
2: That was in uh, 2013.
1: 2013. And so you were there and, and witnessing kind of the typical financing stages that an early stage tech company goes through. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that.
2: Sure. Uh, so I was there uh, early on, came on uh, just after the seed financing round uh, and have some insight going back into some of the Kickstarter campaigns as well. So so the company we, uh,
1: started uh, using we Kickstarter? We started on Kickstarter. Uh, really? So
2: we started out on Kickstarter. So, so
1: for those people that don't know what Kickstarter is, you've got to talk about that a
2: little <laughs> bit. So Kickstarter is a, a crowdfunding platform. Uh, The idea being that if you have an idea for something, you can uh, post it along with your motivations for the idea uh, and some potential rewards uh, onto Kickstarter, and the crowd will fund your project.
1: Assuming Uh, they like what you're proposing. Assuming they like (laughs) what you're proposing. Uh,
2: So in our case, we we put up our first satellite uh, onto Kickstarter, the notion being that we wanted to create... Uh, an open platform for anyone to access space. We so, wait a to second. To make space accessible.
1: Wh- which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did you get money from Kickstarter first before launching the satellite? Kickstarter came first. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, Kickstarter actually funded the launch of our first satellite. So, so
1: not actually, they funded the agreement with a rocket company. To take up your shoebox yes, into space. Yes. Okay, I got yes. this. Uh, so
2: <laughs> with Kickstarter, uh, we funded the the development of our first satellite and the first launch. Uh, the idea being that we went to Kickstarter in order to kind of validate the market interest uh, and what what it is we were doing, and this notion that you could get unique data from these small satellites that at that time were thought of as toys. Uh, and we we launched it under the name ArduSat. Uh, which is now its own brand uh, focused on kind of education technology. Hmm. Uh, The idea being that they have built out an entire platform, a SaaS platform for students to actually access space in a meaningful fashion. Uh, So not only can you work kind of on tools on the ground, but now you can actually access satellites and space through their platform. Uh, But kind of going back, we we launched on Kickstarter. Uh, We found that there was a massive amount of demand for kind of what it is we were pushing to do. Uh, and then leverage that into our first seed financing, uh, where we focused on kind of expanding that network and adding a couple more launches. And these
1: are like traditional seed level investors, like angels and. Correct. So
2: we went through Angelist. Oh, you did? Uh, yep. yep. We yep. went through Angelist uh, and through some personal connections of uh, the founders at the time uh, to raise that seed financing. Uh, So from there, uh, focused on kind of building out those first couple of satellites and getting some uh, technology kind of proof of concept under our belt. And then also kind of getting the the customers uh, coming in in a more kind of streamlined
1: fashion. And then you proceeded to raise money with institutional VCs, Series A preferred and then a Series.
2: Yep. And then we went through a Series A and a Series B. And we just recently closed our Series B in July of $40 million.
0: Well, Congratulations. Yeah, that's amazing. That's over a three-year time horizon. And I think something that's really interesting for our listeners, that's not necessarily really common at all. Can you talk a little bit about that journey from Kickstarter yeah, to Series easy. B? Yeah, yeah uh,
2: so we speed is your your competitive advantage, honestly. So we went from zero to space in under 12 months with our first satellite. Uh, And that was using Kickstarter and our initial seed stage funding. Uh, And we actually launched two satellites on that first launch and then followed it up very quickly thereafter with a third satellite. Uh, So speed was kind of a unique competitive advantage for us. We did a lot with very little, uh, both in terms of capital and then also in terms of people. So at the time, we were about 10 people.
1: And how many many employees are there now?
2: And today, we're about 75
1: uh, split across those three offices. Growth. So I've got to ask the question. I mean, you make it sound like everything just has gone swimmingly <laughs> <laughs> up <laughs> and to the right, right. from, from
0: Angel List to Series B. Have yeah. you hit
1: any major speed bumps? Uh, Ones that you can talk about anyway?
2: No major speed bumps. I'd say the uh, unique thing that we've worked uh, through on our side is simply uh, we're working within a legacy industry. Uh, so space is. What, for the what most does that part, mean? So it's uh, a bit older. It's a bit more set in its ways. Uh, specifically, thinking about kind of uh, launch. So when you launch a satellite, you still need to go through a rocket company. Uh, in our case, we're fortunate because our satellites are the size of a shoebox. They fit inside of a glorified jack-in-the-box <laughs> that then gets put on board these rockets in space that literally used to be reserved for sand and water. So where they would put ballast to even out the weight distribution on the rocket, they can now slot in these standard form factor satellites.
1: With a useful payload.
2: With a useful payload. So we can go up on virtually any rocket, which is great. Uh, The unique element there is that rocket companies tend to work on a timeline of one to two years. Well, our development cycle for a satellite is measured in weeks. So if we're booking a launch a year or two years out, we have not even sat down to even think about what will the technology on board that satellite will potentially look like. And right. we won't for another year and a half for that you know, two-year launch window. So effectively,
1: you end up reserving space. Like, well like, ahead of time. Well ahead of time and hoping that you, the, the ends will meet appropriately when the rocket takes off the launch pad.
2: Yes. yeah. There's never really the question on our side whether we'll meet those ends. The question <laughs> is, where does that launch window fall? How much stress uh, does this cause yeah. in the organization? That's right. And then separately, you know, the fact that we can build and uh, push a satellite out the door in a matter of weeks means that, you know, we could book launches next month or the month thereafter. But the reality is the market doesn't necessarily work that way. Mm -hmm. So working within that confines is kind of a unique element. And of course, every day we're we're pushing them a little bit forward. But that's where we're at today.
0: How typical is that? I was just going to ask, maybe a two-week cycle to launch a satellite, build and ready to launch. How typical is that? I mean, it sounds pretty far out and pretty aggressive in a positive way. Just for context, for listeners, are like, wow, that's we imagine a satellite. We see is that a star or a satellite's w- rotating somewhere in lower Earth orbit? You're saying it in two weeks, we can we can launch that. or Spire can.
2: So this is really where the difference between uh, legacy satellites, what we think of when we think of satellites, we tend to think of a giant school bus sized device that will yeah. get launched into space. Versus our satellites comes into play. The traditional satellite takes five to ten years to go through development. It's atypical in terms of its size, configuration, weight, distribution, all of that. It's singular in that it's one of a kind, and there will not be multiple like it. It costs on the order of hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, and it will be in space for 15 to 30 years. On the other hand, you have our satellites. They are standard form factor, very small, uh, same weight distribution on all of them. Uh, They are in development for a matter of weeks, And they'll be in space for roughly two years' effective life. And they cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow. So it's a fraction of the cost, a Mm -hmm. fraction of the time, and the overall model is different as well. So instead of launching one big satellite to focus on Earth, we're launching many small satellites to focus on Earth and to focus on that temporal resolution, that idea of seeing every point on Earth very, very
1: frequently. Mm Mm-hmm. So we've got about three or four minutes left just to shift gears quickly. You've got offices in three locations. Yes. In, uh, <laughs> help me there, Singapore?
2: Singapore, San Francisco, and Glasgow.
1: So for an early early stage company, that is a complicated operating environment. We went global incredibly
2: fast. Uh, partly out of uh, unique kind of capabilities that we can get out of going global. Uh, and then partly out of necessity as well. So... We're focused on a business that is global in nature. Uh, there's a reason we're called Spire Global. Uh, we focus on those truly global systems like maritime and weather. Uh, and we have customers that are literally everywhere. Uh, so having the capabilities to access Europe, Southeast Asia, the Americas, uh, all in their own time zone was very kind of important for us. Not to mention the fact that we look for you know the top 1% in terms of talent. And the top one percent can't be found solely in Silicon Valley. It's found everywhere.
1: So, so I think what I'm hearing is it's unlikely you're going to take that next cold call coming in from AngelList about looking for a job.
2: <laughs> or maybe uh, no, maybe. <laughs> or no maybe, it's yeah. all about being able to convey your value very clearly, and very succinctly.
0: So what has been? Um, so we have a couple minutes left. What would you say is the most compelling um, thing in your journey at Spire so far, and what can we look forward to hearing about Spire in the future? We excited uh, about
2: good question uh so one thing for me, you know selfishly has been the people uh seeing the people we've brought on to the team and how we've expanded from kind of that small nucleus to where we are today has been amazing. Uh, we brought on absolutely amazing people that did wonderful things in their own right, and then when you pull them all onto a team together, it's absolutely astounding to see just the leaps and bounds that we see every single week yeah. Yeah. uh in terms of where we're going. I can't wait to be able to come back and say that you know we do have the single greatest understanding of global trade that's ever existed, to be able to say that we understand where all goods and things are moving across the planet at all points in time, or to be able to tell you that you, know, you can put away that seven-day forecast and focus on 30 days out and understanding precisely what the next month is going to hold.
0: That's amazing. And that 30 days out is really accurate. It's like right on, dead on. Yep. Well, that's really, that's amazing, Chris. I mean, Spire's definitely taking on really bold challenges and it'll be exciting to keep an eye on and follow where you guys are going and, and hearing about you more in the future.
1: Do do you just, you started the discussion by saying you started working with with small companies and did a stint with PwC in a huge company. Do you miss the good old days when you were a nucleus of five or six people and here you're rapidly heading up to 75 and more and beyond? I think it's just
2: different levels of excitement. So now uh, there's a uniqueness about being able to work with many different people from many different cultures, and still have the speed that we had at you know, five and ten people.
1: And you're part of the culture, though, right? I mean, you're you're the guy in there who's basically establishing kind of the look and feel of the company as it drives. I'm forward. trying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not everyone has the same hipster vibe that right. I do. Keeping a spirit you know, I'm alive. <laughs>
0: Well, thanks, Chris. Um, we've been speaking this hour with Chris Wake of Spire. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is wonderful.
0: So if folks want to find out more information about Spire, they should visit you online at Spire.com Yep. And, or follow you, Chris, at, um, at CJ Wake. Is that your Twitter handle? Yep, correct. Okay, great.
1: So just ahead, uh, we will be speaking with Lee Spire, as I mentioned at the uh, beginning of our program we have typically focused on entrepreneurs and investors working in very early-stage companies. Uh, but there's so much going on in Silicon Valley these days and in the tech sector in general. And we're going to hear a lot about um, you know, the IPO pipeline and how that's faring in today's environment. We're going to hear about unicorns. And what is a unicorn?
0: Right. <laughs> uh,
1: we're going to hear about private IPOs or quasi-IPOs. And what does that mean? And what does right. that mean? Right. And we're going to talk about, you know, is there a bubble that exists in the tech sector? Uh, Chris doesn't want to hear that for sure. <laughs> so I
2: love the space to it, unicorns. It'll That's, be interesting.
1: Yeah. It'll be a, an interesting discussion because I, I think, really, for probably the first time in our program, we'll be focusing at the other end of the, of the ecosystem, focusing on very late stage companies on the threshold for uh, an exit. So I'm Doug Collum. Uh, I'm here along with Irina Yen, and you're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.